If you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and flip over to Malachi, the book of Malachi, and, and put your finger in Malachi chapter 4, and then flip just a little bit forward into the New Testament to Luke chapter 1. What we're going to be doing this morning is trying to bridge that gap. This is the first of three sermons that we plan to use to help us prepare to celebrate the coming of Christ well by going back into the minor prophets, uh, uh, the, the 12 books that finish the Old Testament that we've been spending most of the fall looking at together. We want to go back into those to select the specific passages there that New Testament writers pick up on to explain why Jesus matters so much. And, and that's, we're starting there today in Malachi where we left off with, with our series of the Minor Prophets and, and connecting the dots from there, the final book in the Old Testament, to the way that Luke begins his story in chapter 1 of his gospel. Now, obviously, this should be a truism for you guys, uh, and you probably learned this in some basic English lit classes, and you probably experienced this in books that you read and movies that you watch, but the, the opening scene really, really matters. Where you choose to start your story has a tremendous impact on the shape of it and whether or not anyone is going to pay attention to it. It's the beginning of your story that's supposed to grab attention. It's, it's the, uh, the beginning of your story that's supposed to introduce who the main characters are. It's supposed to introduce, at least through hinting at them, what the main themes are supposed to be and maybe what the tension is that's going to drive the story, where it picks up, what gives it significance, and, and where it's going to go from there. If that's what the first scene in the story is supposed to do, then the question we've got to ask when we turn to Luke chapter 1 is why in the world does Luke's first scene have to do not with Jesus, the, 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 the major character of the whole book, but with John, the birth of an infant to be called John? Why does Luke start there? Now, I'm guessing those of you who have children and you're, and you're telling your kids the, the, the Christmas story, that is probably not where you begin. If you do, you are a great, very, very literal reader of these biblical stories and you are sticking to it. You probably begin with the birth of Jesus or maybe the announcement of the angel to Mary that Jesus is coming and the, the riding the donkey into Bethlehem and the angels and the shepherds. You, you probably go there. I'm guessing you don't start with the birth of John, but that's where Luke starts. Why does he do that? That's one of the questions we're going to answer today. The point of the series, this one and the, and the two sermons to follow, is to try to pick up on details in the Christmas story that maybe we've come to take for granted and to really pry into them and, and ask why. Why is this here? If we, if we trust that all the details in the stories are put there by God, ultimately, for our good, sometimes it's good to deconstruct them and, and to take them one by one and try to, to pry into their significance. And we're going to do that this week with looking at John. We're going to do that next week by looking at Bethlehem as the site of Jesus' birth. Why is that so important? And it's in all the stories. And then, and then the final week, why peace? Why is that what the angels choose to say when they describe Jesus' birth? That's where we're headed this morning, beginning with, with why John. Ultimately, John matters because this is not the first chapter in a story, but the continuation of a story that got left off in the Minor Prophets. That's a story we're going to pick up this morning and try to push forward into, into its application. We're going to do that by reading from Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, and then a section from Luke chapter 1. And as we do that, if you found that in your Bible, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? This is the word of the Lord from Malachi chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 
5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So ends the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Now flip over to Luke chapter 1. Let's read together from verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is God's word. You can be seated. What I want to do this morning is is focus on John as the promised messenger from Malachi picked up here in Luke. And try to understand why it's so important that Luke begins here. I think there are two aspects to it. I think that as promised messenger, John breaks the silence. That's where we'll start. And as the promised messenger, John prepares the way. It's something said by the angels, something that's referred to in the prophets. We want to unpack what it is that he's actually preparing and how. And then to conclude our time, I want to talk about what it's like to, what, what it would look like for us to celebrate Advent well in this time after Jesus has come once before he returns and how we might look through the eyes of this prophet of Jesus coming to, to celebrate Advent most meaningfully, most fully. So to begin, as the promised messenger, John breaks the silence. Here's what I mean. It's impossible, I've said already, to appreciate why Luke begins here with the birth of John rather than with Jesus unless we realize that this one, his book, Luke's book, is not the first book in the series. It's not the first book in the series. It's, it, it, would, it would be, to, to suggest that it would, would be almost like, I haven't read the Harry Potter books. They're, I'm told I really need to, that they're excellent. But I'm guessing that, I think there's like seven or ten of these things. And if you were to just pick up four or five, volume four or five, and just start reading it, 
I mean, I don't know this for a fact from experience, but I'm guessing you would just be lost, right? Because there's a backstory. That's number four in the series, or number five in the series, not number one in the series. And, and, and similarly, Luke is picking up as a next installment of an old, old, old story that's being, that has been told now and been unfolding now for thousands of years. The story of God and his relationship to a people who, who are in covenant with him but have abandoned him and who he is actively trying to win back, draw back to himself. There's a, there's a backstory here. Now, the cliffhanger in the previous volume, if you will, was what we just read from Malachi chapter 4. The most recent book in the series was the last one of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. And the last thing promised in the Hebrew Bible was that God was going to send a new and dramatically different prophet, one who would be in the spirit and power of Elijah, almost like Elijah back from the dead, and that this prophet would be the one who would prepare the people for the day of the Lord. That was the promise that closed the last story, that left the people of Israel hanging, waiting for the next step. And they had to wait a long time. Because as soon as he had written or communicated through the prophet Malachi, God fell silent. God fell silent. For something like 400 years, the people of Israel went without a word from the Lord through their prophets. Now think about that. 400 years. What happened 400 years ago? That's basically Columbus sailing the ocean blue in 1492, right? That's, that, that's, that's the Puritans. That's the English Civil War. That's, I don't know what events go in, you, in your mind when you think about 400 years ago. It's a long time ago. Now imagine the people of Israel who have always drawn their life from God's communication to them. His word has always been who they were, what they were called to be, what set them apart from anyone else. And now imagine them living without that word for 400 years, just waiting on a messenger to renew that communication. That's where... That's where they found themselves after Malachi. It was a long time. And it wasn't static. Things happened. Basically, they were just getting handed around from one empire to another as one would rise and the other would fall. In Malachi, they were, they were a province of the Persian Empire. But the Persians then get defeated by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. They become part of the Greek Empire. Then that thing falls apart and gets split up into civil wars, and they become part of one of these warring Greek factions empire. And then... The, and then as the, the memory of what it was like to be independent, to be their own nation under God, was, was certainly fading from their minds, they actually have an independence movement that succeeds, a movement called the, the Maccabean Revolt. It happened around the middle of the time between Malachi and when Jesus came. They got so angry at the way the Greeks were imposing their will on them, at the, at the fact that these Greek rulers even installed sacrifices of of pork of, of pigs in the temple of Lord itself, that they were, there was such a slap in the face that they rose up and they actually threw off the shackles of these Greek rulers and they ruled their own kingdom for a, for a period of years. But even that never came close to what they had enjoyed under David. It wasn't what they were looking for, what God had promised them. And ultimately, even that kingdom fell apart. They began to have disputes between rulers and who was going to take over after so-and-so dies. And to, to, to help settle the dispute, they decide to call in an arbitrator, the Roman Empire, and the rest is history. Rome comes in to settle the dispute, all right, but they stick around. They occupy and ultimately take over Israel. And they would never be an independent nation again. Now, where Luke picks up in the story, here they are, 
not only independent, not only not independent in the sight of God's renovation of the whole world, like they were expecting, like they were looking for through the promises. Here they are, as nothing more than an almost forgotten province on the fringes of an empire that stretched across the known world. And surely, by this point, only the most faithful even remembered Malachi's promise to them that someone was coming, that God would speak again. Surely only the most faithful remembered. But for those who did, how those people must have longed for it. What must it have been like to wait for God to speak? That's the context into which Luke writes in Luke 1. That's where he picks up his story. The context of waiting, of longing after centuries of silence. But Luke decides to bring us into this context, not through the big macro picture of everything that's going on in Israel, but through the eyes of one particular couple, one particular faithful family who continued to to walk according to the statutes that God had given them to obey his commands and to worship him appropriately. A couple that are are called for us, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1 says that they were both righteous before God, that they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they also carried a burden. They carried the burden of Sarah's, or uh, excuse me, of Elizabeth's, Barrenness. Any of you who have ever struggled with the inability to have children or, or known someone who has struggled with that can, can appreciate just, just how weighty it was for them to carry this around. What we can't hardly appreciate is the shame that also went with the discouragement and the disappointment, with the sorrow and grief. There was a shame associated with barrenness in that age that, that we don't have today. They were, they, were, they were seen to have been at fault for, for not being able to have children as somehow inferior. That's where they, that's where they were found when, when Luke picks them up. But as readers of the Old Testament should know, as those who, who pick up Luke's story and begin to read it with the background of all that they had learned about Israel's history, the fact that that Zechariah and Elizabeth have struggled as a barren couple all these years is the first clue that something is happening, that something is is on the verge of coming to them, that God is once again at work. They would have known, they would have seen in this story, readers of, of Luke's account would have seen in this story the residence of Sarah and Abraham waiting for a child of Isaac and Rebekah waiting for a child, of Jacob and Rachel waiting for a child that wouldn't come, of Hannah praying for a child who ultimately comes as Samuel. And they would know that when God acts for his people in a mighty and salvific way, he often does it in the, in the context of despair and hopelessness, in a context of hopelessness that's maybe best represented by barrenness, by the inability to produce fruit in that sense. They should have known God was up to something, and he was. That's the first clue. Then it happens. Zechariah is going along his way, doing the things that he had been trained to do, that he had given his life to, serving God in the temple, going through the rituals that that Luke tells us we had been faithful at keeping all this time. And then an angel speaks to him. And the first true sign of another world breaking into this one to make it new is given to him. The angel speaks, and he's scared out of his mind. 
The angel speaks to him, though, a word of peace and a word of hope. He tells him that your prayer has been heard, that even though God has been silent and has not been speaking, he has been listening and he has heard your prayer for a son and he's going to give it to you. But not just any son, the angel tells him. The angel tells him the one that's coming, this is the one. This is the one you've been waiting for. Not the Messiah, but Elijah. The angel basically quotes from Malachi. In Luke chapter 1, look again at these verses, verse, uh, especially at verse 15 and, and 16 and 17. He says that this person will be great before the Lord, that this person is going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's almost a quote from Isaiah 4, or excuse me, from Malachi 4, that he's going to go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Again, Mal- Malachi chapter 4, and that he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to children and prepare for the Lord, a people that are ready for his coming. We're meant to know that this is the one, that God's silence is broken, that John is the messenger. Ultimately, we have to flip over to Luke 3 to see this actually come to pass. But in Luke 3, where Luke introduces to us John the Baptist in his public ministry, the first thing that we read for the first time in hundreds of years is that the word of God came to John. The word of God came to John, and he began to speak. So why does John matter? Why does Luke start there? Because John breaks the silence, and he is the first sign that the world will never be the same after the events of this period in its history. History is turning. Now, as the promised messenger, John breaks the silence, but he also prepares the way. And I know that sounds cliche. And you're used to hearing that John is the one who prepares. I mean, it's a, it's a quote from Isaiah 40, and it's a reference back to Malachi 4, and it's in a lot of Christmas songs, and we're used to hearing that. But, but what I want us to do is really unpack what it means for him to prepare. Like what, what is it that's getting prepared, and how does he pull it off? And I think there's a couple dimensions to this. We're getting here not at the fact that God speaks— We've already seen that's why John matters. God speaks again. Now we want to get into more of what God says through John at this particular time. I think there are a couple different aspects to it. He prepares the way because he prepares a people and because he points them to Jesus. He prepares a people and then he points them to Jesus. John prepares a people. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's something that's familiar to us from the role of the prophets in the past. They were all about telling people to get ready for God to do something. They were warning them that their sins that they had embraced in place of faithfulness to God, even though it might look like they aren't going to be punished because God's not doing anything now, will be punished eventually. They won't won't stand forever. To call people to repentance, to renewed faithfulness to God, to find in him everything that they need. And John picks up that theme just like the other prophets have. There's nothing really radically new about that side of his ministry. He calls people in, in... Verse, uh, uh, or rather, Zechariah summarizes what he's going to call people to in verses 74 and 75 of chapter 1. He's going to, what he's going to be doing is trying to create a people who are serving God without fear in holiness and righteousness. He's come to prepare a people who are set apart, who live in this world but not of it. The image of those verses to me brings up, I mean, have you guys ever been on a trip with a big group? Um, it's, it's actually typically a pretty painful experience. I'm not recommending this as a, 
as a, as a, as a guide for Christian engagement of culture by any means. But have you ever been on a, on a trip with like a high school group maybe or in any kind of group where you're all friends and you know each other and you're going as a group into some new place that you haven't been before, but you take with you all the dynamics of interaction that are common to your group and you don't really pay attention to the norms and expectations of the society that you've injected yourself into and you just kind of carry on as if everyone is part of your big party is this resonating with you guys you've been i'm getting a few head shakes hopefully this isn't falling flat it's one of the most horrific experiences that i've had i've had this had many many times because i like to just sort of blend into the background but you go with a people that has their own standards and values and they live as a people apart in whatever culture they're a part of it could be could be some city could be another country on a mission trip or something like that they walk around like buzzing with their own activity as if they're not part of something bigger, right? Now, I've just described that as a negative experience, but I'm trying to use it as an example of actually a positive thing that, that John is calling for here. As a people who, who move through this world as, as in holiness and, and righteousness and serving God without fear of what others are thinking about them, of whether or not they correspond to the values that others expect of them, of, of what might happen if they're faithful. They just serve without fear. They just, they just are. They don't even think about it. They're holy and they're righteous. That's the kind of people John came to prepare. But here's the key. Here's what makes John different from a lot of the prophets we've seen earlier who've, who've had similar messages. Repent for God is coming. John's actually works. For some reason, for a specific reason, John actually prepares this people because he comes, the angel tells us, and Malachi tells us, full of the Holy Spirit. And he will turn the people, the children of Israel, to the Lord their God in a way that the other prophets never were able to do. He, his message resonates and has an effectiveness that whereas earlier prophets, their messages, similar messages, often fell on deaf ears. And I think what we're meant to see that is that see in that is that that John is the promised messenger who would not just tell a people to repent, but who would be used as an instrument in the hands of God to actually bring people to repentance. The fact that these people are turning to God, as as is said here in chapter one and back in Malachi, is a result of of John being used by a power that's not his own, that changes these people and what they want, that, that literally converts them or grabs them and brings them back, changes their course because it's changed what they want, what seems beautiful to them. Well, that's something that the, that the earlier prophets never really saw happen on a large scale. And it's something that comes to this generation as a gift from God's hand that he would actually change them and turn them back to prepare them for the coming of Christ. Now, we know that the, that the nation of Israel didn't convert in mass. It wasn't like all of them heard John's message and responded well to it. But a lot of them did. This was a real revival that's described in the Gospels. And, and, and from this revival came the, the men who would lead the church after, after Jesus. Jesus' core disciples were at first disciples of John who had responded to this message and become part of this people who were prepared. So the promise from Malachi that's evoked by this angel actually came true. And through John, a people ready for Jesus' coming were set apart. That's part of what it means for him to prepare the way. It also means that he's going to point them to Jesus. His role as a messenger, as a preparer, is more than just calling for action. It's more than just calling them to repent. It's also about just announcing to them something that's about to happen. The reason they need to repent is what's coming. And part of John's role as a preparer is to announce what that is. 
It was common for the prophets to announce the day of the Lord. And certainly John does that. This day that that is in the future, that when it comes will be a day of salvation for those who fear God and a day of judgment for those who don't. But John's message is less is not limited to this day that's coming. He doesn't tell them what's coming, but who is coming. John is the one unique among the prophets who was sent to preach about Jesus, about the Messiah, and about what his coming means. Malachi mentioned this. Malachi described this coming messenger as the one who would come before me, before the Lord, as the one who would come before the Lord appears at his temple, Malachi 3. But the best description of this role of John as the one who would prepare the way for a person for his coming and the salvation that he brings, I think my favorite one is in Zechariah's song, a song that's often called the Benedictus. It's at the end of chapter 1 in Luke. Flip over if you have to to uh, Luke, just after the birth of John the Baptist, beginning of verse 67, Zechariah gives us a song about his son that's just been born. So what's happened is the angel announced he was coming. Zechariah didn't believe it, got struck silent for not believing it, and comes to believe it over this nine-month period. His wife does believe it and rejoices, and eventually they're given this child. They name him John. And all the people who, ha- who are witnessing this birth are wondering, what is this child going to be? They saw that this couple was too old to have children, and now they have had children. They've, they've seen that they decided not to use the name that's from the family, but a name that they, that they seemingly pulled out of thin air. They're going to call him John and not Zechariah or some other family name. They know that, that something's not quite right, and they, they, they know that this kid must be special. And so they ask Zechariah, what will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him, verse 66. And this is Zechariah's answer. Verses 67 through 79 are a beautiful hymn-like song that he sings over the birth of his son. But one of the most remarkable things about this song is that it's not really about his son at all. It's about one whom his son had come to prepare. It's about the one whom his son would be speaking of, the one of whom his son was the prophet. Verses 68 and 69 and 70 talk about the covenant and how in this moment he recognizes that covenant that we've been waiting to see fulfilled. The covenant with Abraham and with David is is on the verge of coming to pass. And he knows that that covenant and the fact that it's on the verge of coming to pass is really tied up with the fact that his son has been born. That's why he picks up in verse 76 with his child. And you, child, Zechariah says, referring to John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you see the emphasis here? This is even Zechariah in his joy as a father, in his celebration of the child he thought he would never have that has now been given to him, celebrates the child not for his own sake, but for the fact that he will go before the Lord to prepare for him. The point of John is the Lord who comes next. 
The Lord is coming, and in his mercy, he's bringing forgiveness of sin and deliverance from enemies and freedom from everything that threatens us inside and out. I love the imagery of salvation that we get in in Zechariah's words. We're going to table it to some extent for a future week. A couple weeks from now, we're really going to try to unpack what it looks like, what what this imagery tells us about what the salvation Jesus brings is like, what it promises us. But notice for now, that this is why John matters more than anything, because his coming promises that the time is at hand, that history is turning once and for all, that a new world has broken into this one and has started even now to make it new. That's what John means, and that's what his message will be, to point people to the one who, in the mercy of God, is the sunrise that visits us the, the, the light that shines on those who sit in darkness and under the shadow of death. That's why John matters. So, how do we, this year, 2011, it's 2011, right? Yeah, 2011. How do we claim the role of John and his message to us, the significance of God speaking through him, to celebrate the coming of Christ in a meaningful way as we're stuck here, sort of, between when he already came, what's already changed, and what we're still waiting for, the time when we will have bodies like his that are not subject to decay, to sickness and death. We're, we're in this already and not yet tension. How do we celebrate Advent here? And how does John help us to do that well? Ultimately, I think John has a great place for us to begin our celebration of Advent because he, more than any other, was the prophet of the Advent. He's the one sent to prepare for Jesus' coming. That's his whole identity and purpose. So let me suggest three things from John's purpose and his example that help us make the most of this opportunity. Three suggestions. First, remember that God's word still speaks and live by it. Remember that God's word still speaks to us and live by it. Remember that? We started there. That's the first significance of John, is that he is the, the restoration of God's word to his people. He speaks again. And in some sense, he still speaks to us. But in an even greater sense, John was the first step towards God's word being restored to us. And what we know from the rest of the New Testament is that God's word, the word restored in John, is now full and complete in Christ. The writer of Hebrews said that God formerly spoke through the law and through the prophets, but now, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. What John means for us is that God communicates again, Pulling forward from John, we know God communicates everything that we need to know in Jesus. And here's why that matters. That matters because we, too, are prone to feel as if we're living in silence. We're prone to feel distant from God, to wonder what he's thinking of us or what he wants from us or whether he cares about what we're experiencing. We all, If we're honest with ourselves, we, we all go there sometimes. Where is God? Why is he silent? We tend to feel as if we're living in, in a situation not unlike what Zechariah and Elizabeth must have experienced, a life of, of struggle and sorrow and disappointment and discouragement, a life of waiting through suffering or through apathy. God can seem non-existent even, at best just silent. 
I think John's significance to us is that in, in John, God's word was restored. And through John, the path to God's full and final word to his people was given to us. And now, God is never silent. God's spoken to us everything that we need to know. He's spoken to us finally in the word who became flesh. That's how John reveals Jesus to us, right? The gospel writer as the word of God who actually became flesh. What that means is that in Jesus, when we look at him and what he did, not just what he said, but also what, what he did with his life and, and particularly in his death and resurrection, what we have there is God communicating to us who he is and what he is for us. So caught in the silence that comes from apathy or suffering or whatever else, Advent, especially seen through John, is an opportunity to bring ourselves back to the truth that God isn't silent, ultimately. He may not speak to us audibly or come to us in dreams or in flashes of light, but he's here already saying to us everything that we need to know about how much he loves us. He says it in Jesus, in the fact that he came. Advent is about getting silent, about silencing all the false voices that are in our heads, telling us that God doesn't care about us, so that we can actually hear the word that he speaks and forever will speak to us in Jesus. So remember God's word speaks. Remember also that Christ has come. I know that sounds simple, but it's revolutionary. Remember that Christ has come, and what that means is that history has already turned, and there is hope in the not yet while we wait for him to come again. I've said that we've got to remember that God speaks, but what is it that he's spoken to us? What is it? It's a fact and a promise. It's the fact that Christ has already come and the promise that in him there is salvation and redemption and freedom. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's been a long time since Jesus was here. And the promise that he's coming back seems intangible to us. It's hard to to latch hold on it, to to sense it, and, and to trust it. Especially when what Jesus called the cares of this world are always tugging at us, tugging at our minds and hearts, tugging us away from confidence that the world to come has already broken into our world of sorrow and sin and started to remake it all over again. We have competing testimonies to what's true and what's real. Christmas, and Advent in particular, is about trying to latch hold to the truth That because Jesus has already come, as John promised that he would, explained to us that he would, a light has already dawned on those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. If there's anybody who could appreciate what it's like to live in the not yet, in in circumstances that call into question the promises made to us, and yet still, against those promises, claim the promise that Jesus is, is making all things new, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during World War II, uh, pastor, theologian, seminary professor, real man's man. He was, uh, he was, he, he was. He was imprisoned for an attempt to assassinate Hitler. And he was imprisoned for most of World War II. And in 1943, less than two years before he would be executed for his attempted assassination, he wrote this letter to his fiancée, Maria. It's a letter that I think just captures beautifully this tension of living in darkness the world that's still dark, but living as if the, the, the hope of Christmas, the hope of John and Zechariah's song is actually true. This is the way he put it. Be brave for my sake, dearest Maria. Even if this letter is your only token of my love this Christmas tide, we shall both experience a few dark hours 
Why should we disguise that from one another? We shall ponder the incomprehensibility of our lot and be assailed by the question of why. Over and above the darkness already enshrouding humanity, we should still be subjected to the bitter anguish of a separation whose purpose we fail to understand. That's the darkness, right? He's honest about where he lives. And here's the light. And then, just when everything is bearing down on us, to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault, that's all. God is in the manger, wealth in poverty, light in darkness, succor in abandonment. No evil can befall us, for whatever men may do to us, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. Advent's an opportunity to reflect and to fight back. It's an opportunity to hear God's word that still speaks, but more specifically, it's an opportunity to hear this. That word is a promise that darkness and death are banished, that we no longer live under them, but the tables have turned, and what stands condemned is death itself and all of its handmaidens, death along with sin and sorrow, death along with fear. Advent's about reminding ourselves of what Zechariah is saying, of what John came to announce to prepare the people for. That those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death have now had a sunrise visit them from on high. The point is that history isn't cyclical. And it doesn't go on forever. It's moving in one direction. And it's already turned because Jesus has come. To a people living in the darkness, under the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Advent's a chance to preach John's message all over again to ourselves. So what's keeping you this morning from claiming that word, from owning it, from owning it and living by it? What's holding you back from that? Why not today? What, because you can't prove it? Because you can't prove that it's true? You don't have some sort of syllogism that, that works out all the mystery and the incomprehensibility of it? That's keeping you back? What can you prove like that that really matters? Because other things seem more tangible to you? They seem to be more desirable to you? Hasn't your experience shown you by now that there's more to life than just more stuff, than, than, than sex, than relationships, and whatever it is you're after? Hasn't your life shown you already that there's more than that? That that just won't do it? Ultimately, those are shadows. They belong to the darkness. There's good in them if used properly, but when, when made a god, they are shadows that you'll always be clutching at and never grabbing hold of. What's keeping you from believing that the light has dawned and from staking your life to it? Why not now? Ultimately, what may be keeping you from it is just apathy and distraction. And Christmas, ironically, is one of the most prone, one of the times when we're most prone to that, to missing the opportunity to latch hold of these promises because we're so clouded out by other voices in our heads. And that's the third thing, I think. You've got to remember that Christ is coming. He's not just already come. He is, he is coming. And in the, no, in the notion that he is coming, again, find, find a renewed impulse to be ready, to, to, to have him find us a people prepared. John's message is a simple one. It's get ready. It's fear the Lord. 
It's a message that we always need. But in, ironically, in Advent, perhaps any, any, more than any other time of the year, we lose sight of that. This is the way Walt Rangren, a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, novelist and Christian author, he, I love the way that he put, poses this question to us. As we, as we observe Advent and look back to Christ's coming, but also look forward to the second Advent and fight for the ability to focus, do we, he says, who are busy preparing for Christmas, for parties and presents and decorations and food and church programs and visitors, do we prepare with equal fervor for the visitation of the Lord? What sort of Advent is this imminent Advent for you? In other words, this one that we're in right now. What sort of Advent is this one going to be for you? It can really go one of two ways. If you're consumed by one more Christmas just the season, the celebration of it, the the things that normally grab for our attention. Or as he puts it, one mere Christmas among 2,000 Christmases. Your Advent is fleeting. It's time-bound, and it's likely self-absorbed. But if your participation in this temporal Advent, the one we're in right now, truly signifies preparations for the final Advent, you are Christ-absorbed. So why John? Why does Luke start there? Because his coming and his message represent the fact that the new day is dawning, that history has turned, and the world to come has broken into ours. That's the promise. The launch sequence is already engaged. Christ has come, and Christ is coming. So may he find us to be a people who are prepared. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to cut through all the things that distract us and, and, and compete for our attention and help us to latch hold of the promise that you have spoken and always continue to speak to us, that there is light and life in your Son who is the Word made flesh. We pray especially this morning for ourselves as a congregation that this year, this season, these next few weeks, would have a dramatic impact on us, not just as individuals, but as a congregation, as we recenter ourselves, as we silence the voices competing for our attention and focus deeply on the fact that Jesus has come and that he's coming again. Would you please give us clarity of thought as we move through these days? Would you do as you did through John and through the Holy Spirit, quicken us and turn our hearts to you? That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.